0: Welcome to Tales of Britain and Ireland. This is a podcast telling the stories, legends and folktales of Britain and Ireland in no particular order. Presented by Graham and coming direct from South Yorkshire, each episode tells a story or selection of stories from all across these islands and throughout their history, followed by a short and decidedly inexpert discussion of the origin and themes of each tale. Before we start the stories today, I'll just say that if you're a regular listener of this podcast, you'll have noticed that it's become a little less regular itself, and I've quietened down somewhat on social media. Life is rather busy right now, mostly in a good way, but I've less time to devote to the podcast than I'd hoped. However, I'm determined to keep releasing about one a month for the time being. I've received some lovely reviews recently, which has given me the determination to keep going. It will continue, and in the very near future, hopefully it'll become a little more regular again. Now last episode I discussed the City of London at some length, so today rather than rehashing all that, I'm going to get right on with a few more disparate stories from the greatest city in the land. A place that, according to Samuel Johnson at least, no intellectual man is willing to leave. Southwark Cathedral is a Church of England cathedral on the south bank of the River Thames, a stone's throw from London Bridge. As with many places in London, it has a long and venerable history, and a church has existed on the site in some form or another for over a thousand years, with elements of the current Gothic cathedral dating back 800 years or so. It might not be the largest of London's four cathedrals, but it's got a breathtaking vaulted ceiling, huge stone pillars, and a lot of pointy bits, both inside and out. The Cathedral and Collier Church of St Saviour and St Mary Overy is the place's proper title. Back in the old days of Christianity, the land was awash with saints, practically full up with the blighters before a drive for quality control, careful vetting, and the introduction of stricter admission criteria caused numbers to drop off in the 11th and 12th century. And according to legend, Mary Overy was one such saint. We go back to a far distant time, before there was a bridge over the Thames in London. At that time, any who wished to cross the mighty river had but two options. To go all the way around, or to avail themselves of the services of a ferry. Now, London was still a large place even then, so many boats went back and forth across the river each day, moving those who wished to get to the south bank to the north, and those from the north bank to the south. The sort of people who were not inclined to stay where they had been put were the sort with the money to afford the passage, and thus the ferrying business was a mighty profitable one. And so it had proved for John Overs. John had for many years been granted sole ownership of the ferrying fleet, and such was his skills and business acumen that over that time he had built up a great fortune due to his efforts. A good deed well rewarded, you might suppose. And you might also expect that such a successful man would be a happy and generous sort, for great were his wealth and success both. But, on many occasions, a mad desire for money seizes the already rich and a villain may be forged. In that lust of the pursuit of wealth, which should rightly enable the pleasures of life, the pursuit of wealth turns to an end in and of itself, and an end that can have no end, a craving to possess which may never be sated. Not even should the whole world be turned to gold and given to the miser, for then the stars would still twinkle up above, and covetous eyes would turn to them, and the hunger to possess would still burn just as brightly in the damaged soul. Such a soul had John Overs. His house was small and miserable, his garb and manner reminiscent of poverty. His estates and fortune were matched in their extent by his tight-fistedness, and both he and his family lived drab, dreary lives of constant toil. Perhaps his only concession in this regard was towards his one daughter, Mary. She was permitted an education, though a cheap one, and John would forever bargain the price of her tutors down. So Mary had had the opportunity to learn a little of life outside the business of her father, and she herself grew to hate his mean ways, doubly so as she reached adulthood, when he made a virtual prison for her, her his most valuable possession. He forbid her any contact with men, silenced any discussion of suitors, and turned down any who came asking after her hand. So Mary lived in virtual servitude under her tyrannical parent. But... Well, one man can't be everywhere at once, and Mary used an Anglo-Saxon version of the knotted bedsheets and clothes-in-the-bed trick that teenagers later would use to sneak out and go to the big dance, so that she managed to acquire a suitor. They had, as our story begins, met four times, and because opportunities to meet were so rare, things by necessity had moved pretty fast. And by that fourth meeting, Mary and her unnamed lover were, well and truly, acquainted Old John over remained blissfully unaware, and Mary would count the days down till she could see her lover again. Now the old man had an army of servants and workers to do his bidding, though they would never be used to save work for himself or his daughter but rather they would spend all their time engaged in working on the ferries, making sure all who used them paid, and paid well. The servants, of course, got exactly as little in the way of recompense for their labours as John Overs could get away with. The meals were the cheapest he could find, industrially produced black pudding purchased at a penny a yard, soups made from the marrows of old bones, and the stalest, hardest bread he could find. Oh, what a paradise it was in this time before unions and minimum wages, when poor, needy entrepreneurs weren't shackled by the interference of government. Oh, what halcyon days they were, though we may yet be lucky enough to see such times again. Anyway, to try and keep my biased, freedom-hating, left-wing mischaracterization of the magic of the invisible hand out of this story, it is worth noting that one advantage of this setup was that no vermin could be found within Over's house, because there was not a scrap left to eat, for even the very worst food was cooked in some manner for his workers. Which I suppose demonstrates a real commitment to efficiency and hygiene and environmental sustainability. But, as with all good antagonists, there came a time in John Over's life where his money-making schemes moved from simply the cruel and mean-spirited into the -the over-the-top pantomime villainous. You can kind of see the thought processes at work when Overs realised that on the death of someone close, the church encouraged fasting until that person was buried. The cogs went round. What can only be called a scheme came to him all of a sudden. He rubbed his hands together in wicked glee when he considered it. I could fake my own death. Or my workers would be obligated to mourn. Then, I would simply wake up a day later, declare it all to have been some kind of fainting fit or something of the like, and I could save a whole day's worth of food. Dragon's Den Worthy, the idea probably wasn't, though it could have perhaps been successful on an episode of The Apprentice. The once perhaps sound businessman now had a cog distinctly loose in the engine of his mind. John dragged Mary into his scheme, and with great reluctance she found herself helping her insane, money-making, obsessed father do his insane, money-making, obsessed father things. Feeling, probably not for the first time in her life, that she was Huey, Dewey and Louie in an episode of DuckTales, she found herself wrapping her dad in a sheet and laying him out as though dead, with candles and incense and the whole thing. She was only too aware that not only was he breathing, but he was finding it difficult not to burst into mad cackling at his foolproof plan. Really, Dad, really, this is never going to work. But Mary was afraid of what her father would do should she not assist, and so she continued the ridiculous performance. And once the preparations were in place, Mary went to announce the news. With great solemnity, she approached her father's head servants and told them that she had discovered him dead that he was laid out and asked them whether they wanted to pay their respects. The first reaction was sheer incredulity, and of course they wanted to see the body themselves. And here was surely where it was all going to fall apart, thought Mary, as many of her father's men crowded into the room, where her very living dad rested under a sheet. But no, for upon seeing his body laid out, the men didn't bother to examine, for they were too busy being overjoyed. An impromptu song and dance routine broke out right then, and as though they were in a musical, the oppressed workers were soon chorusing about how bloody wonderful it was that the penurious old bastard had finally kicked the bucket. Perhaps entitled, John Over's is Over, or something cleverer. Underneath the morning sheet, overground his teeth in anger. The old man had somehow been unaware of the hatred he inspired. But it didn't matter. Let them celebrate, for they would still have to fast and so... Hey! There's the good bread! It's here! came a voice. Oh, I've found some cheese! came another. Aha! The ale! came a third. There were general sounds of jubilation and merriment as the food and drink was brought out. Whoever took over the ferrying business, they couldn't be as bad as that, old miser. It was time for celebration, and the hungry workers got well stuck into the food they had been denied for so long. Ah! With a mighty roar, John started to get up. The party around him turned in horror to see the dead body struggling in the sheet. There was a panic. Not because the men fought for a moment a ruse had been played on them. no but because the wailing body in its funeral shroud looked nothing so much like a ghost. Or perhaps even the devil himself had come to claim the soul that was his. Luckily, being ferryman, an oar was close to hand, and a bold chap dealt the hideous figure a stout blow, and Overs fell back onto the place he had been laid out to rest. And this time, he was actually quite dead. Oh, the semi-ironic punishment that had been dealt to him. For seeking to bring about profit with a fake death, he had brought about his real demise. But what of Mary, who I'm sure you remember is somehow to ascend to sainthood out of this strange affair? Well, that bit all happens in a kind of narrative adjunct, really. For on seeing her father actually dead, Mary had the bright idea to send for her lover. Now they could get married, and the lucky man and Mary would inherit her father's fortune. And they would certainly not scrimp and save and live in a hovel. They would use it well. Mary's lover lived outside the city, and he received the news from Mary's messenger with great joy. Immediately he was on his horse and riding for London at great speed. And just as he was entering the city, his haste was such that his horse threw him, and the poor man was left splayed out on the cobbles, his neck broken, his eyes unseeing. Yes, it appears this entire story has just been a lengthy introduction to one of those disturbing adverts that are all about the dangers of speeding. Now, with the death of her lover, Mary became stricken with grief. And worse, she was suddenly surrounded by a whole load of new suitors who were suddenly very interested in her and her enormous inheritance. Day by day, they hounded her as she tried to mourn. Mary considered what to do with all her money. Eventually, she decided to turn all the wealth from the ferry over to the men who had done the work, turning them into a true workers' collective. No, no she didn't, nope. No, she took it all and she gave it to the church, took up religious vows and retreated from public life. And that fortune was used to build a bloody big church in Mary's honour, a church which would later become Southwark Cathedral. And Mary got a sainthood out of the deal as is only proper for those with a lot of cash to splash around. What actually happened to the ferryman, I do not know. But let us hope that their lives were at least a little improved thereafter, at least until the next worst boss came along. Now, from Suffolk Cathedral, one could take a short stroll across London Bridge, glancing down the Thames as the peddler of Swaffham did then walk past monument recalling the great fire up to bank station veering left onto the wonderfully named poultry that's it just poultry a road which becomes the ironically named cheapside very much a hub of the global financial markets all glass and limestone buildings replete with business suited types pret a mangers and shoppers then one should pass by the dome of st paul's still imposing even now due to careful restrictions of building around it and follow the road up for half a mile or so. Take a right at Holborn Circus, which despite its jolly name is just a busy road junction, and you'll very soon find yourself on Hatton Garden. And the first thing you'll notice there is all the bling. Jewelry emporium, diamond buyers, gem merchants. It's a surprisingly grubby road for a centre of the UK's diamond market, and the place that's wealth has inspired an entire industry of cockney crime capers, both real and fictional down the centuries and up to today. But we've not come here for tales of the Great Hatton Garden Robbery of 1678, or the 2015 Hatton Garden Safe Deposit Burglary, or even any of the exploits of Michael Caine. No, we've come here for a small, cobbled courtyard with an evocative name just off Greville Street. These days it is a haunt for yuppies and hipsters, but in times past, Bleeding Heart Yard was associated with something even darker. As you might be able to guess from a name which does not exactly suggest kittens and candy floss. It's the 16th century, and good Queen Bess is on the throne. Elizabeth I, a.k.a. the Virgin Queen, Gloriana, Queen E, sure bet, Finn Lizzie, or Ellie the Elegant, had a long reign, which despite being packed with political intrigue and foreign wars, was a time of relative stability for England and for London. Though sparsely populated and wild compared to today, London was booming. Our boy Billy S. was going down a storm at the Globe, and the city was a bustle with trade, industry and every entertainment imaginable, however unadvisable it might have been to imagine them. Sir Christopher Hatton was one of the Queen's most trusted advisers, and had built for himself a large house within Hatton Gardens, a place which he found was named most conveniently. Sir Christopher, so our story goes, was a renowned dancer, cutting mean shapes on the Elizabethan dance floor with his flamboyant ultra fashion sense. Cloak and doublet, lace-trimmed, silk stockings, buffed-up gloves, red-heeled shoes and, of course, a yellow starched ruff around his neck. He had risen through the ranks of advisers rapidly, and while some attributed his success to his disco routine, others whispered of darker forces that were involved. Elizabeth Hatton, nee Fanshawe, who, though rich, could afford fewer nicknames than the Queen, hailed, of course, from a good family. She had been with her husband since early in his career. For Christopher, she was perfect. But there was a certain talk that grew up around her. Her maids, a necessity for a rich woman, never seemed to stay with her long. The departed maids would talk to their friends later on about Mrs Hatton's strange habits. She was a reader, which wasn't too bad by itself, though she was a lady. However, she was known to read in bed a habit that was questionable at best and downright suspicious at worst. Worse still, said one maid, under her breath in a London tavern. Strange sounds came from the woman's chambers at night, groans and sighs and other odd noises. What? asked a friend. You mean she was having it away with some fella? They're all doing that, those posh folk. Nothing else to do, have they? but the traumatised ex-maid fixed her doubting friend with such a stare that the woman soon lapsed into silence. No, no, you think I don't know that? This was something else. Sounds I never want to hear again. Unearthly sounds. She shuddered. What do you think it was? It was like the room was full of something. Something not right, not of here. Like... (sighs) was like a hobgoblin was crawling out of hell. Now the nature of rumours are to spread, and so it was with those regarding Elizabeth Hatton. It was not long before people of high and low standing would declare solemnly that she was able to speak to the dead, that she could transform man to beast, that she could divine the future, and that, broadly speaking, she was in league with the devil himself and yet, oddly enough, the cloud of gossip that surrounded her did nothing to her husband's ingratiating himself with all at court, most particularly the Queen, and with his rise to power. Over the years, the Hattons' prestige continued to grow, and they amassed titles and lands and wealth through their intimate connections with good Queen Bess. As men are wont to do, Christopher Hatton flattered himself that it was his charisma, his skill, his breeding and intelligence that had elevated their position so but on some level he must have known, suspected at the very least. But it's very easy to not know what you really don't want to know. And so he ignored the little hints. The way his wife would carry little bottles of unlabeled concoctions around with her, concealed on her person only to appear before in a meeting with an important courtier. How his wife would watch carefully as the Queen drank from her goblet, Probably he also had to forget how she'd burst into random fits of evil, witchy cackling. Sir Hatton's cultivation of willful ignorance was at a truly legendary level. Now the lives of the couple were the very best that Elizabethan England could offer. For food and drink they never wanted, and all the comforts of the pre-modern world were theirs. Though the whisperings continued, no actions were ever taken against them, for they always seemed to have an exceptionally loyal group of supporters at court. For years and years this went on, and so it might well have continued, had it not been for the infernal credit controllers. The bookkeeping in Hell was, to put it mildly, a mess. Now you might have supposed that Hell was well organised in this department, being stacked with financiers, accountants, actuaries and the like, but the deserving torture of these souls, rather than their gainful employment, distracted from the maintenance of decent ledgers. Which wasn't really the forte of demons, who were really more comfortable with the get a fork and stick them with the pointy end part of the job, than with debits and credits and stuff. So it was that an overdue debt had been allowed to sit uncollected for many years without anybody noticing. <laughs> The only being in existence with more nicknames than Elizabeth I regarded his doctor. Sir, I must insist you get some time away, said the imp, stepping back from his patient and placing his stethoscope back around his red neck. Lucifer, Old Nick, Satan, the Prince of Darkness, the Archfiend. Yes, we are talking about D-E-V-I-L, the devil. The devil groaned slightly opened his terrible dark maw to protest, but the imp cut him off. Sir, you've gout of the claws and hooves. I didn't even think that was possible. You're suffering rheumatism, and you're hobbling around the place. Even immortal personifications of evil need to take a break every now and again. You've been all over the world encouraging these wars and imperial conquests, and you're doing a great job, sir. We all think so. The assembled legions of hell nodded encouragingly. The devil looked around suspiciously. No one will think the worst of you for it. The legions shook their heads theatrically. The devil went to speak. And as your doctor, I must insist, interrupted the imp. Satan slumped back, defeated. A few weeks rest, sir. No arduous adventures. Can I at least catch up on the paperwork? "'asked Satan, a great talon, "'indicating the messes of printed books, manuscripts, scrolls, "'and even stone tablets that hadn't been looked at "'since the very earliest days of man. "'Okay,' said the Dr Imp, "'but go easy on it.' "'A while later, our Invalid was flipping through a weighty tome "'when he chanced to notice a discrepancy. "'He gave a disgruntled snort of fire and brimstone. "'This wasn't right.' A signature was scrawled in blood, acknowledging a debt owed. A debt that was now well overdue. A signature of one Elizabeth Hatton. Now Elizabeth Hatton was at that very moment discussing with Christopher the plans for the latest addition to their bloated property portfolio. The couple were somewhat more advanced in years now, towards the end of their Middle Ages, and Sir Christopher was by now the Lord Keeper of the Privy Seal – a highly prestigious title, which mostly involved maintaining a large stock of fish and an ice house. We need a townhouse, don't we? Just a little mansion, for me and thee, said Elizabeth. For we have all these country estates, and they're lovely, but London is really where it's at. Perhaps you should ask the Queen, she suggested. I'm sure that she will be amenable to the suggestion. Absolutely positive, in fact, Elizabeth gave a small cackle. Mm, capital idea. Christopher waited for the laugh. Capital because good, but also the house is in London, the capital, capital idea. Ha ha. Now off you go, dear. And so it was that a little while later, the Queen had told the Bishop in no uncertain terms to vacate a good proportion of his lands and his great house and hand them over to the Hattons. And who was he to refuse her majesty? The house, with all its fixtures and fittings, was transferred to them in one foul swoop, much to the consternation of the poor bishop. And now? Now it was time for the housewarming party. No small-time affair was this, of course, but the very height of the London social calendar for the year, if not the decade. It would combine the elegance of a high-society ball with the rowdiness of a massive frat party. Invitations were dispatched to the great and the good with all the necessary RSVPs and to the less great and not so good with less formality. And soon all of London was abuzz with expectation. When the allotted evening arrived, the streets of the city approaching the ex-bishop's house were crammed with pedestrians and carriages making their way to the party. Historical figures of plenty were wont to be seen. Francis Drake, William Shakespeare, Walsingham, and William Cecil amongst them. Soon, the party was in full swing. And boy did it ever live up to the expectation. There was a great banquet, there was drinking and carousing, there were star-crossed lovers and fights on the dance floor, music and laughter, and all the tremendous energy of humans enjoying themselves to the very utmost. The clock struck twelve... And as it did so, there came a loud knock at the door. Somehow, despite the wild revelry, everyone within the mansion heard the sound distinctly. Most of the guests were in a large ballroom dancing to the music. But as the knock was heard, the musicians found themselves suddenly and worryingly unable to play. The tune seemed to disappear from their minds and from their fingers, as though sucked up into some great, awful, silent void. And as the music stopped, the guests fell silent too, and a mighty hush descended upon the crowd, until the whole room, boisterous just a few seconds earlier, was now deathly quiet. From the hallway far below, there came the sounds of the large wooden doors of the house being thrust open. And then a noise from the stairs, sounds that were strange to pass to the ears. For it sounded to all the world like a horse's hooves. But surely no horse could ascend that grand staircase. The whole room was waiting, frozen in place and then the great folding doors were swung open and into the room with great panache danced a figure dressed smartly as O for the ball with a rough and pointy shoes and fabulous gloves and the whole lot of it every garment was black black as night and on the figure danced spinning around in pirouettes leaping across tables and scattering ornate chairs in his wake he danced to Lady Elizabeth. He stretched a black-gloved, taloned hand out to his horrified hostess and grasped her hand tightly in his. She let out a blood-curdling scream and onlookers close by saw that the arm of the hand that had been taken seemed to shrivel up. And the beast took Mrs. Hatton and he whirled her and he twirled her around and around, getting faster and faster. and then they seemed to rise into the air, twirling ever more, until smash. And impossibly, up out of the roof, the couple danced, and up further into the night sky, the lady shrieking the whole while. Though it had been a pleasant evening, a huge storm was now in full force, and a gale blew in through the hole in the roof, bringing rain with it, and the combination soon extinguished all the candles. Lightning forked down, and thunder crashed all around the house, and a great panic suddenly possessed all the guests, who found they could move again. And move they did, away from that cursed place they fled in all directions, until, soon enough, the storm-wrecked house was in darkness. And completely abandoned. When the bravest of the people returned in the daylight, the interior of the wonderful mansion was completely wrecked. Of Lady Hatton there was, of course, no sign at all. But out in the cobbled courtyard by the pump, a discovery was made. For there on those cobbles lay a human heart, and improbably, impossibly, the organ was still beating blood pouring from it, almost endlessly. And that, ladies and gentlemen and others, is the 100% factual account of how Bleeding Heart Yard got its name. One more short story left for this London episode. And as per last episode, we'll be turning our attention away from the shining spires and elegant buildings of the city, and sinking down, down to what lies beneath. Now it's not just the railways that lie beneath the feet of Londoners going about their business. For one of the key things that helped make the 19th century city the marvellous metropolis of the modern age, also lurks beneath those streets... In fact, London's sewers can themselves genuinely be considered a marvel of modern times. Thousands of miles' worth of pipes carry shit and water out of the city, a vast infrastructure of sometimes surprisingly beautiful architecture. The man who gets much of the credit for this is Joseph Bazalgette, a giant of civil engineering whose work vastly improved the lives and health of hundreds of thousands of people by reducing the outbreaks of cholera and typhoid that had ravaged the rapidly growing city. But of course he didn't actually build the tunnels by himself. That was down to the back-breaking toil of a great many workers. Now legends attached themselves to both the new sewers and the dirty, rubbish-filled underground rivers that had served as sewers before those shining new ones were built. It was said, for instance, that pigs had escaped into the sewers beneath Hampstead and there, in the dank and the darkness... The beasts had feasted on the horrible sludge, offal and garbage, and in this way the pigs had survived. And they had bred. And in time this race of subterranean swine grew fat and large and ferocious. Huge and black, it was predicted that one day these monstrous creatures would burrow out of the road under Highgate Archway and run amok in the city. Now the young Jerry Sweetly had heard the legends of the pigs, of course but he'd been around the sewers long enough not to believe them. If they were down there, he'd have seen them. There were creatures that lived down there, of course. But the rats, though ubiquitous, mostly left men like Jerry to their own devices, and people like him returned the favour, giving the rodents a respectfully wide berth. Sweetly, though still a young man, had worked in the sewers for many years, This was not a steady job with an employer, you understand. For Sweetly was what was known as a shoreman, or a tosher. A tosher was someone whose work consisted of scouring the sewers of London for valuable items that had made their way down there by accident. Jewellery and money could sometimes be found in the piles of muck, and the right find could set a man up almost for life, though very few were so lucky. The work was the most disgusting and horrible sort, sorting through piles of excrement for just the possibility of a meagre earnings. Many a day, Jerry Sweetly would come away from hours of labour with nothing to show for it. And even when he did, it was only enough to keep him going for a day or two. Being a sewer scavenger was a difficult, dangerous life and no mistake. But tonight, James Sweetly was out of the sewers. Things had gone well recently... And this young man was now a young man about town, with a bit of cash. As soon as he had the money, he knew exactly what to do. Open a savings account, speak to an independent financial advisor, invest in a pension. Or alternatively, he could get straight to the nearest pub and get the drinks in. Pubs in Victorian London were loud, raucous and dangerous places. Jerry, of course, was used to danger, and the type to be found in the pubs was far preferable to the sewers. She was also used to danger. She wasn't familiar with the pub, but she was familiar with Jerry. She had watched him for a while now, and that night, as the young man celebrated his recent modest good fortune, she followed him into that place. You might have thought that a young, beautiful woman would have attracted the wrong kind of attention in a place like that and many might have but the lecherous men who cast their eyes upon her found themselves strangely disinclined to approach there was something about how she carried herself something about her eyes her eyes that seemed to glow something in the easy confidence of her sure smile so it was that she could easily make her way through the drunken throng as people parted to let her past. Her destination, her target, was that young man she knew well. Tonight was getting better and better, thought Jerry sweetly, as he turned to see the woman approach him with a smile on her face and a certain look in her eyes. And though he didn't know why it was happening, he was not one to let an opportunity like this pass him by. So Jerry and the mysterious woman fell into fun conversation. The eager, loud kind, where the words aren't so important as the person saying them, and the unsubtle body language of two people signaling their attraction to each other is the most important part of all. They were flirting outrageously, basically. And so one pub was quickly followed up by another, and then another, and then the strange, excitable woman suggested they move on to the dance halls. The evening became a frenetic blur of drink, music, dancing and lust, until finally Jerry and her unnamed woman had found a quiet space in a warehouse to give way to the passions that had been bubbling away since they first met a few hours previously. Look, I'm not going to go into details here, but let's just say that everything was going fine, better than fine in fact, really well. When the woman unexpectedly bit Jerry on the neck... And not a lover's bite, but a searingly painful, surprisingly sharp and deep bite that went through the shirt that he was wearing. Instinctively, Jerry knocked the woman off of him. But as the blow landed, should have landed, all of a sudden there was nothing. His senses befuddled with alcohol. The confused man propped himself up on his elbows, looked around, blood dripping from the gash in his neck. The huge, silky-furred rat looked at him. It looked somewhat irked. And as it opened its mouth to speak, Jerry saw the piece of his shirt fall from its jaws. Ah, Tosha, thank you for this evening. My gift to you is good luck in the sewers, but you'll have more to pay for it still. And then the rat left. The stories came back to Jerry then. The Rat Queen, undisputed ruler of the sewers. Occasionally, for reasons best known to herself, she would transform herself in order to take on a human lover, one of those she had seen at work. Her strange animalistic magics were whispered about in legend. She promised both reward and danger. And so it proved to be for Jerry. For from that day forth, his good luck in the sewers continued unabated and he was forever finding the most valuable artefacts in the muck, even if others had recently been over the whole area. Whenever he saw a rat from then on, he'd stare a little harder at it, see if somehow he recognised it as her. But he never did come across her again. And though he continued to be respectful to all the rats from that day forth, it did not prevent the curses that seemed to strike those he loved. His first girlfriend died in childbirth, a second wife, after having many children, fell into the Thames and was tragically and brutally crushed by a barge. But the strangest legacy of all for Jerry was in one of his children. For in a way that defies typical understanding of genetics, one of his children came to be marked by his encounter with the Rat Queen. For when his first daughter was born, she had one blue eye and one grey, and from the youngest age she had remarkably good hearing. Strangest of all, even though her mother died in the river drowning, Sweetly's young daughter grew up with no fear of water at all, and it was reputed that by strange means, Sweetly's encounter had made his strange rodent-marked child entirely immune to drowning. Which is especially odd, as that is not something that rats are renowned for at all. But apparently, that is how the magic works. And so, yeah, that's the story of Jerry and the Rat Queen. More an urban legend than a nicely plotted tale with well-developed characters. And that's our final London tale for today, though I'm sure we will be returning to the city at some point. So now, a little background slash waffle about today's stories. Let's start at the end with Jerry Sweetly and the Rat Queen. I'm intrigued about how this story seems to tie into other tales of seductive women who turn into animals, it's a fairly common trope in British mythology and beyond, with it being seals and foxes and other examples. There is apparently just something that appeals in the idea that animals turn into women, desperate to get it on with random human men. And I don't want to go too deeply into any Freudian interpretations of that. This particular legend is a bit of a one-off, and updated for a modern age with a particularly unusual animal. And from everything I can tell it seems to have a single source, having actually only first been recorded as late as the 1990s, which definitely makes it the most modern source of a tale on this podcast so far. And equally unusually, it was also told as a second-hand account of a supposedly true story. According to Liz Thompson, who first told the tale, her great-great-grandfather was Jerry Sweetly, and he had revealed what had happened with the Rat Queen in no lesser setting than a deathbed confession, when he died in 1890. Which is one hell of a deathbed confession, and must have had his family really scratching their heads. So yes, this one is for all you cryptozoological nerds out there. There's a fair chance a sexy shape-shifting whir may live in the London sewers. However, I think Nessie and the Beast of Bodmin Moor are probably safe in their position at the top of the table of UK cryptids for now. Now, the tale of Lady Hatton and her bleeding heart. The version that I told was drawn from the Inglesby legends. This was an 1837 book of comedy, gothic horror, historical and saintly stories. They're told mostly in verse, with awful, stretched rhyme schemes that are intentional and amazing. We covered a tale in the podcast before, check out episode 10, The Hand of Glory, for a bit of an overview of this book. But the legend itself had clearly been doing the round a bit before then, and most famously it crops up in the Dickens novel Little Dorrit. Now, there are actually two versions of the tale in circulation, one of which is the witchy devil one that I've just told, the other of which is less fantastical, whereby Lady Hatton was having it away with the notorious Spanish ambassador who attends the ball. She is said to have left with the ambassador, or Señor Gondomar, and her body is found torn limb from limb, with the heart still pumping blood onto the cobblestones, rather than merely the heart itself. I far preferred the more over-the-top devil version of this story, pretty much because it's so silly. Now, the whole thing has been cobbled together from lots of historical figures who did live around the same time, though bits that are true, Christopher Hatton's nicking of Ely Palace is about the only really substantial bit. And of course, Queen Elizabeth I did have a lot of nicknames. According to Wikipedia, the actual name for Bleeding Heart Yard probably comes from a nearby pub whose grisly pub sign showed the heart of the Virgin Mary being pierced by swords, which, aside from being pretty damn metal, used to be a common depiction of Mary and the sorrows she suffered in her life, because Catholicism loves itself a bit of gore. And what of Suffolk Cathedral and our Saint Mary Overy? Well, oddly enough, there's a good chance that Mary Overy didn't exist at all, this precursor to a Scrooge story seems to have been a bit of a back formation. It seems likely that ovary actually just meant over the river, so the church which was the predecessor to the cathedral was simply known as St Mary's over the river, with no Mary Overy necessary to explain all that. There's a plaque telling the legend of the cathedral by it today, and the version I have told comes from a pamphlet first published in 1744, grandiloquently entitled... The true history of the life and sudden death of old John Overs, the rich ferryman of London, showing how he lost his life by his own covetousness, and of his daughter Mary, Reeve, who caused the Church of St Mary Overs in Suffolk to be built. Wow. That is some title, and those guys seriously had never heard of spoilers. Anyway, it's clear that the legend has some pedigree, going back several hundred years. But where exactly it first comes from, I can't quite find out. Now, it does bear some similarity to other stories of misers getting their comeuppance. I do like how the story is ridiculous and contrived, though the moral of the story is presented as being about the evils of money-making. Really, it's more about being a careful road user and not faking your own death. Now, we've reached the end of the London Legends for now, and I hope I've really laboured the point that myth and magic are not just rural affairs. In these two podcasts we've heard tales of prophetic dreams of London bridges, underground tunnels haunted by magical rats, giant pigs and the ghost of an Egyptian princess, a saint with an awful father, a violent Elizabethan Wonder Woman and the slow to collect the counting in hell. And we've barely scratched the surface, having even managed to miss out the Tower of London and not mention the creatures that lurk in the Houses of Parliament. This great city at the heart of the UK and yet, somehow removed from it, has many more odd stories to offer up. And we'll try to cover more of them in time. But for the next episode, we're leaving urban living behind, and we're firmly back in the sticks with a story from Lancashire. You can follow Tales of Britain and Ireland podcast on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. There's also a website, talesofbritainandireland.com, there's a page for each episode which contains more information including illustrations asides and recaps along with other additional bits and pieces to explore the intro music was written and performed by alice nichols and you can find all the other musical credits on the episode page on the website if you enjoyed this podcast then please do share it with others or give it a review as those really are the best ways to help us out you can also join tales of britain and Ireland on patreon to get extra members episodes thank you so much for listening And I hope you'll join me again soon.